Now turn back, uh, if you have a Bible with you, or iPad, iPhone, uh, to page 1089, if you're using the church Bible, and to the passage from John's Gospel, chapter 20, that we've already had read in, in the service earlier on. A very famous book, in, uh, still in print, that people have told me, uh, exceptional people have actually told me, it's been one of the most important books they've ever read. It's called How to Read a Book. How to Read a Book. And, you know, when we see a title like that, we all think, well, that's one thing we can all do. We all know how to read a book. No, actually, what we all know is how to read, except the youngest ones who are still in this morning. But reading a book is actually a little different. And that's true when we come to reading the Gospels. It's especially true when it comes to reading John's Gospel, because John not only wrote the Gospel, he actually told us how to read the Gospel. I've never actually read that book how to read a book, although I own it. But I think it will say at least these two things. When you're reading a book, you need to read the introduction. Because if it's a decent book, what does the introduction do? It tells you what to look out for in this book. And if you're reading a book properly, you also ought to turn to the back pages, maybe not Agatha Christie, because it may spoil the book, but other kinds of books. You need to go to the back pages and to see what the conclusion of the book is. And then when you're reading the book, you should be able to see how it is that what the author said the book would do in the introduction is actually something that's accomplished in the conclusion. And John's gospel does exactly that. He tells us in the first 18 verses of the gospel what he's going to tell us. And it's as though he's saying, when you read the rest of this gospel, make sure you look out for these things. And then right at the end of the gospel, he tells us, this is why I wrote this gospel. Very interesting, in the first chapter he tells us, essentially this gospel divides into two sections. The first section, in a way, is about how Jesus came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. And the first 12 chapters of the gospel are, are really about that, about Jesus coming to his own people, showing the marvelous signs of the coming of his kingdom, showing who he was, offering himself to them, and at the end they turn away from him, the end of chapter 12. And then says John in the beginning of the gospel, it's true that he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. But there were those who received him, who believed in his name, and who as a result became the children of God. Now notice these three things. They believed in him, they received him, 
and they became the children of God. And then when you get to chapter 20, verse 21, John says, I wonder if you noticed what I was talking about in my introduction, because the reason I wrote this book, and this is a unique statement in the Gospels, this is the only time in the four Gospels which together, if you can do the arithmetic quickly, have, I think, 89 chapters. The only time in 89 chapters of the Gospels where any of the authors turns to the reader and says, I'm talking to you. Nowhere else in the Gospels do the Gospel writers stop and say, by the way, I'm talking to you, reader, like in the old books, gentle reader. But towards the end of John's Gospel, John turns to everyone who reads, and he says, now, the reason I've written this book is that so you may come to believe in this Lord Jesus, and as a result, you may have eternal life. And it's fascinating to me that this great resurrection narrative that we have in John chapter 20, uh, the first long section of it, tells us how to believe in Jesus because it explains to us what John had said in the beginning of the gospel, he would show us in the gospel what it means to come and find Jesus as our own Savior and Lord. And this is it's very fascinating, actually. And, and you'll see that John does this in three stages, or he, he picks out from all the different things he could have said about what happened on that first resurrection day, he, he picks out uh, three stages of Jesus dealing with people. And they're very obviously a reflection of what he'd said in chapter 1 and verse 12, that when people believe in him and receive him, they become the children of God. I notice that, first of all, in the opening section, how John, the author of this gospel, himself came to believe in the risen Christ. Um, You probably need a blank sheet of paper to fix up together the different things that happened on this Sunday morning from the various gospels, but you'll notice that John in particular focuses attention on, on Mary Magdalene at the beginning of chapter 20 and her individual experience in the garden, and uh, how she ran off, and, and wherever the other women were going, she specifically went to get Peter and John, and Peter and John come back to the garden, and uh, they run fast, too fast apparently for Mary to keep up with them, although she's coming back as well. And John, the writer of this gospel, gives us this uh, very sweet little note that as they were running, he says, the other disciple by which I think he means himself, the one whom Jesus loved, managed to run faster. Um, So there. But although he ran faster, when he got to the tomb, he didn't go in. And there's something very 
consistent with Simon Peter, isn't there here? You know, Peter, Peter's like the boy who, like, runs straight into the water. He, he doesn't stop. He just runs past John. So, though John is the first at the tomb, and he, he's able to look in, Peter actually goes in. So, the kind of difference between the two men in personalities, but there's also another difference between them that… Uh, that John points out, isn't there? That then John went in. John went in, and look at what the gospel tells us happened. He says, when Simon Peter came, he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. And then this strange statement, for as yet they didn't understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. So here John now goes into the tomb, and he sees exactly the same thing Peter saw, but his reaction is different from Peter's reaction. He saw and believed. And he tells us it wasn't that texts of Scripture came back into his mind, or even some of the things that Jesus said had come back into his mind. He didn't believe because now he understood the Scriptures, because he tells us he didn't yet understand the Scriptures. So why did he believe? Well, he believed because of the the testimony that Jesus had left behind and it looks as though it was instantaneous. You know, sometimes you see things, and, and it's, you know, some things you've got to work out, but some things you just immediately see, and the picture is clear, and you understand what's happened here, and that apparently was John's experience. He, he immediately saw that what Jesus had left behind said something very powerful. It told John he had risen from the grave. If you'd asked John to explain that, I think he would have said something like this, well, I realized then that this was the right grave. I realized that uh, it couldn't possibly be that we'd come to the wrong tomb. And I also realized, I suppose if I stopped and thought about it, I think I would be able to say what I realized was that the body had not been stolen, because this was not the the evidence of theft. I realized that something supernatural had taken place here, something with a kind of extraordinary supernatural calmness about it and that when Jesus had risen from the cold slab in which his body had been resting the last 40 to 50 hours, he'd very carefully folded up the the shroud in which he had been placed by Joseph of Arimathea, and he'd even taken the, the face cloth, the napkin that had been placed over his head, and he'd, he'd carefully folded it up as well, and he'd, he'd kind of left it in a, in a separate place. 
And so John came to believe because of the testimony that the risen Jesus had left behind. And I think this is the reason why he says later on in this chapter, I want you to come to believe like this too, because this is actually how people come to believe. I mean, the fascinating thing about what we might say is the, is the first male resurrection believer in Jesus Christ is that he hasn't, as it were, yet face-to-face in a kind of physical way met the risen Jesus. But he has come to faith in the risen Jesus because of the testimony that Jesus left behind. And when you think about it, that's exactly how it happens, isn't it? That is why there is a Christian church. Uh, People do not meet the risen Christ the same way Mary later meets the risen Christ, or the way Simon Peter apparently met the risen Christ, or John and the other disciples later on in the day met the risen Christ, or the two on the road to Emmaus met the risen Christ. We meet the risen Christ through the testimony He has left behind, and the testimony that He has risen, the testimony He's left behind is first of all found in the testimony of the apostles, and then it's found in the testimony of Christians, isn't it? You ask most people, how did you become a Christian? And you will find almost always one of two answers. I was reading the testimony of the apostles in the New Testament or I saw something in the testimony to Jesus that Jesus left behind in one of those who follow Him, and I I saw there was something different. I, I couldn't understand, but I was attracted. Even I was attracted against what I really wanted to be. I wanted to argue with them, and I did argue with them. And then I realized that there was a testimony here that proved to be irresistible. So John says, I'm writing this gospel, and right in the introduction, the gospel is written because I want you to come to believe. And here's a marvelous illustration of a man who comes to believe because of the testimony that Jesus has given. But then, as the narrative moves on, we we move on, don't we, from John coming to believe in the risen Christ, to Mary Magdalene, how does she come to believe? That's interesting, isn't it? She comes to believe very specifically, John tells us, because she heard the voice of Christ. Not simply because she met Him physically, but because she heard the voice of Christ. And when she heard the voice of Christ, uh, what did she do? Well, she, she received him. And in fact, she so much received him, he had to kind of say, stop holding on to me, Mary. Stop holding on to me. And it's a, it's, a, it's a completely fascinating account. You know, people who read this realize this has got all the signs of authenticity. Mary's bewilderment, the kind of things she says… You know, if you've taken away his body, show me where the body is so that I can, so that I can bring it back. You know, who, you know, so that I can bring it back. 
There's this kind of sense of almost uh, confusion, um, and such confusion that uh, when Jesus appears, uh, he's been watching her, and he, he steps forwards, and she thinks he's the gardener. And uh, that's one of the reasons we read Genesis chapter 2, because in a sense, Jesus really was the gardener. Adam was the first gardener, and the serpent said, take and eat, and he did with his wife and brought death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father said to Jesus, take and drink, and he did. And what he did by drinking the cup of God's judgment on the cross and in his resurrection brought life. I mean, it's as though he is, as Paul says, this is the, this is the second man and the last Adam and on the day of his resurrection, he's confused with the gardener, but there was good reason for him being confused with the gardener. Uh, Mary, Mary, in a sense, was thinking way beyond what she was capable of understanding. But then something happens, and it's, it's, it's very moving, isn't it? Um, you know, sometimes because of events that took place in this building, I put my ear up against the wall and say silently, unless anyone thinks I'm going crazy, speak to me and describe to me what happened here in the middle of the 19th century. And if I were in the, if I were in the garden, I think I would say, is there not some amazing technology that can recapture that one word that Jesus spoke, just so I could hear the way he said the name Mary. You can say the name Mary in a thousand different ways, can't you? But he said it to her, you know, he must have said this to her before, and she recognized his voice. And you see, you need to learn how to read a book. Because John has already told us, you remember in that marvelous passage in John chapter 10, he said, this is how people come to believe in me. The sheep recognize the voice of their shepherd, and they follow him. And that's exactly what happened. John comes to believe in him because of the testimony. And what happens here is that Mary comes to believe in him because she, she heard his voice. And actually, that's how anybody comes to believe in Jesus. Nobody comes to believe in Jesus according to the teaching of the New Testament without first hearing his voice. That is to say, not just, not just reading the Word of God but actually having a sense that through the Word of God, Jesus Christ Himself is speaking to us. Actually, Paul discusses this in a very important part of his letter to the Romans. He says, how is anyone going to come to believe? He says, they come to believe through the preaching of the Word of God. 
But how do they come to believe the preaching of the Word of God? He, he puts it like this, literally. He says, how can they believe in Him whom they have never heard? Now, some of the translations, if you be patient with me for a moment, some of the translations translate that. How can they believe in Him of whom they have never heard? That's true, but I don't think it's actually what Paul was saying. If you're really interested in the technicalities, the verb he uses here takes the genitive of the object, okay, and get that out of the way. What he's saying is you can't come to believe in Him until you hear Him. And if you're a believer here today, that's what happened to you, isn't it? You, you may have been in Sunday school, you may have been in church, and it was all, it was all like, like over your head. And, and you, you took it in. I maybe told some of you before of a sweet old lady in a church I served who came up to me one day in a very conspiratorial way, and she said with a smile, very excitedly, you know, she most of the people around here think I've been a Christian for 50 years. But I only really became a Christian two years ago. I don't know how many times she had stood up in the church and recited the Apostles' Creed. All that I believe, and never doubted it. But it was all kind of out there. And then one day, through the Word of God, she was conscious that there was another voice calling her by name, and he knew her. You see, the shepherd knows his sheep. He found her. This is what we discover in, in, when the Word of God is, is read or preached, especially when it's preached, when, when we, we think, he doesn't know these things about me. Somebody's, you know, most ministers who preach the gospel have been asked at some time at the church door, who's been talking to you about me? And this is what has happened. Horatius Bonner, who in those old days sometimes preached in this church, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Now thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. And if we become Christians, it's because we responded. And we came like Mary here. And we recognized this time he's speaking to me. And we embraced him. We didn't ever want him to go, and we were determined we would never let go. So, John himself, the author, comes to believe in Christ. Mary Magdalene receives Christ, and then Mary is sent off on a little message, a message uh, mission, isn't she? she? She's told by Jesus, now go to the other disciples and tell my brothers, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, there's the thing. Go and tell my brothers. 
They hadn't behaved like brothers. None of them had behaved like a brother. What's so interesting is that uh, there were women at his crucifixion, but at least as far as we know, there was only one man at his crucifixion. Where were the men? They were gone. They'd run away. Simon Peter denied he'd ever known him. And what's happened now, he says, go and tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. Sometimes these words are understood, I think misunderstood, as though Jesus were, were making a big difference when I think what he's saying is the very reverse. He's saying, now that I'm risen, now that you've come to trust in me, go and tell my brothers that when anyone believes in me and receives me. Remember what John had said in his introduction, they are given the right to become the children of God. So go and tell them they're my brothers, and go and tell them that the Heavenly Father is their Heavenly Father. And it is interesting, isn't it, that although throughout the Gospels Jesus teaches about what it means to have God as your Father. And although He had taught the disciples to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, and so on, uh, you don't get any of the disciples saying, Our Father. The nearest they come is when Philip says in John 14, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And, and Jesus says to him on the evening of his crucifixion, Philip, how long have you been with me? And you still don't understand. And now he's saying to them, this is what it means to trust in me and to receive me. You become a child of the heavenly Father. And there is no higher privilege than this. There is no greater honor that we could possibly have, no greater encouragement and comfort than to be able to say with all our hearts when we come to the Lord of the universe, oh, Heavenly Father. I think it's especially true today, although it's certainly been true all through the years, that that many people say, and many people say to their ministers, I, you know, I, I, I just can't think of God as my heavenly Father. If you knew the kind of Father I'd had, you would never think of God as your heavenly Father. You see the, the mistake that we all tend to make. We begin with our Father, and then we try and project upwards to the heavenly Father. And we'll never get to the heavenly Father that way. The way to understand the heavenly Father, and this is what John has been doing all the way through his gospel, and this is why Jesus says to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, that if you want to know what the Father is really like, then listen to Jesus talking to him. Listen in to the relationship between the heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus. Listen to the love, to the mutual devotion. Listen to Jesus say, you know, the reason my father, he knows he's going to experience this terrible cry of dereliction that we were thinking about on Friday night with Craig. He knows he's going to experience that, but he knows at the same time that's the moment when his heavenly father is going to say, Jesus, I love you as much and more than I've ever loved you. The reason the father loves me 
is because I lay down my life for the sheep. And Jesus is saying, you've seen that relationship. Now you're being, go and tell them that they're welcomed into that relationship, that they're able to come to Him and call Him their Heavenly Father. And you see, this is, in a way, the most obvious difference between a real Christian and somebody who's not a real Christian. Somebody who's not a real Christian can stand up and say the creed, can say they are Father. But in the hour of crisis, when they're really, their backs are against the wall, when the walls are falling in, when the sands are shifting beneath their feet, the highest they will reach instinctively and intuitively is to say, Oh God, you will never find them saying as the believers in the New Testament said, Oh, Father. And you see what he's doing. He's, they've, seen, they've seen this relationship that Jesus has had with his heavenly Father, and he's saying, now when someone believes in me and receives me, then they have the privilege of being called the children of the heavenly Father, just as they've seen me speak to him as my father. It's what John will later say, I think, with a sense of astonishment. Goodness me, our fellowship is with Jesus, the Son, and with the heavenly Father. And that's what he had said in chapter 1 he was going to show us. As many as believed in him and received him, to them he gave the privilege of becoming the children of God, who had been born not of the will of man or the will of the flesh, but who had been brought into God's family by God's grace. And that doesn't happen naturally. It happens only when we're brought to faith in Jesus Christ. A colleague years ago who had been a missionary, and uh, they had adopted a little girl into their family, and this a wonderful man, wonderful, wonderful Christian people who had who had done everything they possibly could to to soften this little girl's heart and to encourage her to think of them as her her father and mother, and she could just never ever call him father. And then one day he told me he was sitting at his desk and a little girl came into the room with a, a shoe in her hand and uh, the, the shoelace had broken. And he heard her say the magic words, Daddy, I need a new lace for my shoe. I need a new lace for my shoe. It's melting to hear about it. And you see, this is what happens to us when we believe and receive and have the right to be called the children of God. And when it's really true, it's not just pretense, it's really true, then we're able to come to Him and say, Abba, Father. And this is why John wrote the gospel. This is why we study the gospel. This is why 
We are interested in the testimony that Jesus has left behind and what it means to hear his voice and receive him and to be drawn into this marvelous family of God in which we're able to call him Abba, Father. You know, if you are an outsider uh, and, and you know some of the folks in this church, but you've never seen them in this church, that's one of the things you will notice, that this is a, it, it's not just a kind of family. It really is a family. And to belong to such a family as the family of God is what you were created for. It's why there is a kind of undergirding homesickness in your life. And here in the gospel is how that homesickness can be cured, and you can come home through faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you sense He's present with us today, just as He was present with them? Then let's come and trust Him, and then we'll be able to say, Oh, Heavenly Father, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. Thank You that every Lord's Day is a Resurrection Sunday for us, but we thank You for this annual commemoration and celebration of that great day, that first Resurrection Sunday, when our Savior rose from among the dead to open the gates of heaven to give us eternal life, to bring us into the family of God, and to pour out upon us blessing upon blessing. May we enjoy this. Today we pray and enjoy one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.